4: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on Forum, parenting in the U.S. when you're an immigrant, which often comes with its own set of challenges and questions, like how to react when your child does not want to learn your native language, or rejects your lovingly made tiffin or bento in favor of a PB and J, or complains that you're putting too much pressure on them to succeed. This hour, we talk with parents navigating the obstacles and the opportunities of raising a child far from the country they came from. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Nina Kim. We're often more likely to hear the experiences and perspectives of the children of immigrants than of the immigrant parents themselves trying to raise their kids in America. Masha Rumor, who came to the U.S. from the Soviet Union when she was 13 years old, felt acutely this lack of stories and representation of immigrant parents after the birth of her first child. To fill that void, she's written Parenting with an Accent, which inspired today's segment, this hour, we'll hear from parents navigating the challenges of raising a child in a country far from where they were born. And if this is you, we want to hear from you. Tell us the the hard, the weird, the wonderful that comes with being an immigrant parent. And Masha Rumor, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much
1: for having me, Nina.
4: So your book, it has stories of immigrant parenting that are sometimes funny, sometimes sad from parents actually all over the world. But is there one that comes to mind from your own? Own experience, where you think it really captures the challenges that immigrant parents face?
1: Um, yes, um, when my daughter was just just turned three years old and uh, my son was just a few months old, we were um, the the holiday season was upon us, and it was around Christmas time. And when we were driving in the car, I put on a song from my own winter holiday tradition, which is called Vlisura Dilis Yolichka in Russian. It's basically, it's completely secular. It has nothing to do with Christianity because everybody in the Soviet Union celebrated the calendar, basically, (laughs) December 31st. So it was similar to Christmas, but without any um, religious traditions assigned to it. And so I put the song on for my daughter and she says, what is that song? And I was like, yes, I'm going to tell my daughter all about my traditions and my holidays and i said oh it's a russian holiday song because you're a russian girl right and she said no i'm an english girl and i want another jingle bells that my daddy listens to (laughs) um so it was like oh denied um so that was really hard and of course i didn't keep playing the song but later on i remember going to grocery store a few hours later and just getting really misty and even having trouble shopping for like vegetables because I was overcome with a sense of, you know, feeling rejected and kind of lonely and like my children are not into my heritage at all. And a huge part of my past is being lost. That's how it felt.
4: Did you anticipate that this would be so important to you um, when you were having your child and what i mean by that is that this desire to to basically grip your russian culture more tightly after becoming a parent
1: you know i didn't really anticipate that at all i came here when i was a teenager so i've lived here for most of my life um i'm married to an american you know english was a, is a language that we speak to one another but when my daughter was born i suddenly just could not speak english to her at all it had hmm. to be russian which was you know i didn't expect that and that's exactly how we started bringing her up me speaking russian to her in the first few months of her life
4: yeah it's interesting you considered yourself i guess very quote americanized at that point having been here since you were 13
1: right right so it was very unexpected and it wasn't just the language of course um and language is a huge part i mean it's how we you know identify ourselves it's the memories it's the people we love that We may have not seen since we've moved here or, you know, have stayed Mm. in the old country. But it was also the traditions, the music, the the cartoons. um, They suddenly I was just over overcome and flooded with all these feelings of longing and nostalgia, even though I'm an immigrant, you know, it's not a political thing. You know, There was a reason I'm here and not back in Russia or the former Soviet Union. But those personal experiences of home and my own childhood were suddenly just very raw to me. And I really wanted to share them with my kids.
4: Yeah. And I mentioned that there were very few resources or things that you could find that kind of reflected back that experience of being an immigrant parent, right, that you felt very alone. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Um, Well, that's exactly, it's, um, I suddenly found myself feeling quite isolated, and I know that identity crises and the feeling of isolation is a very normal thing for parents of, you know, no matter where they're from, um, you know, especially lately when we're becoming much more isolated even before COVID. Um, But yes, uh, I didn't really, I really wished there was a resource for me to, you know, to relate to and to feel less like I'm, you know, like a strange person straddling two cultures. Um, There was definitely loneliness. I wished I had some bilingualism resources as well. But I did find some really great resources on how to raise a bilingual child, but they seemed very regimented. Uh, like if you have to do, you know, steps one, two, three, but it's very hard to follow all those steps exactly. And then at one point, you just feel like. You know, maybe like you're messing up or you're not trying hard enough or your mm-hmm. child is suddenly not into it at all. And then you kind of give up altogether. It's it's really frustrating. So I and I didn't find any non-fiction kind of resources that reflected my experience and also the experience of other immigrants, no matter where they're from, the more I started talking about it. And that's how the idea for the book came about.
4: Yeah. So, so mom groups, it sounds like, weren't really cutting it for you in terms of being
1: support systems was yeah it was a little I mean I think the mom group has its own culture obviously there's so many wonderful things about them but um, I guess it also depends on whether the people share your experience and and I think being an immigrant you sort and it also of course depends on when when a person comes to the United States right as an adult or as a a little child but yeah there's a bit of like a shape-shifting happening and obviously people who are multicultural or bicultural are good at you know, trying to adapt to one culture or the other, same as the language, but some things we just can't really adapt or we can act on it. But especially when you have, you know, certain like pop culture references or childhood references, it's, it's very isolating. I had a few of those experiences, you know, even though I was meeting very nice people, I just, I just felt like a fish out of water in many ways.
4: Hmm. Did you ever do things that uh, for your own baby that your parent did for you? that got looks or stares?
1: Yes, I, I still do. I must confess. I'm <laughs> always thinking that they're like really hungry and that they're cold. So I make them wear slippers and they each have a few pairs um, so that they don't walk around barefoot in the house. And And I'm always joking, you know, guys, when you grow up and go to college, I'm going to be living right next to you, rent a little apartment and make sure you wear slippers. And then I'm like, Maybe I'm actually serious. I don't think that's a joke. (laughs) I might actually do that. And uh, that's a very cultural thing that, you know, thinking, you know, having grown up in a very cold climate um, and not always had enough food. um, Yeah. So that's kind of where it came from.
4: You also had this very poignant story about trying to show your daughter Russian flashcards. Can you just tell us a little bit about that experience, especially as you were referencing earlier, kind of the regimented like these are the steps you need to do to, to have your child learn another language?
1: Yes, yeah, so I was able to buy these flashcards on Amazon, and and of course resources I should say are also very important, like you know books and flashcards are so critical to to stimulating the language development. Plus, videos, of course, too. So I finally found those really cool flashcards, and I was showing them, but instead of actually in, enjoying the cards, my daughter maybe it was my son they just ended up scrawling all over it and like not really wanting to speak uh, the language, especially I would say when they started going um, full-time to an American daycare and being surrounded by the language. Um, And of course, when the kids are in a monolingual environment, no matter how much their parents want them to speak the heritage language, they're just more self-conscious and want to be uh, like everybody else. And that's when the language started to be kind of rejected at that point.
4: When you think about all these things that you've tried to do the reasons that it's so important for you that your child is connected to your Russian heritage what do you think it all boils down to is it just this desire for for like a real deep closeness and not feeling like that's possible
1: without these connections to you I think that's a really great um, that's a really great way of putting it and that's something I also found in my interviews that I did uh, for the book with other parents and, and even non-parents. There are some non-parents um, that I spoke to as well. So it definitely, I mean, there are many, there's so many benefits of bilingualism and we hear about them all the time, right? There's, you know, the cognitive benefit, there's, um, you know, the multitasking, there's the um, people are more empathetic, but in the end, it's it's not really about that. It's it's the ability to be, uh, to speak to, you know, the grandparents who might in some cases might not be able to speak English at all. It's the ability to one day travel abroad and, you know, meet the family they may have never met and just understand those experiences in this very intimate way. And some jokes that cannot be translated the, you know, the wealth of songs, the, the recipes, the um, just the cultural heritage. And it's definitely not just like, Oh, I can do, you know, 20 pushups versus five. It's, it's not about like an ability. It's, it's something so personal to so many people. I'm um, mm. having that connection.
4: You mentioned earlier that your spouse is U.S. born. I'm so curious if there are things that partners can do to really share the responsibility of passing on, um, you know, one of the partner's cultures.
1: Um, that's a really great question. From what I found, and, and just having spoken to some psychologists about this um, for the book, is that it's it's not necessary for the partner to learn the native language of their spouse. Um, It's, I think it all just boils down to an open mind. And of course, accepting the person's heritage, not belittling, not belittling it. um, Oftentimes, actually all the time, kids are so receptive to the attitudes um, that they hear about their heritage and their language. And they, that, you know, the, the heritage transmission might be easily affected by the negativity. So, really just just being open and appreciative. And of course, it doesn't hurt to learn a a few words.
4: (laughs) Well, Perry writes, I'm from Turkey and miss my large extended family of cousins, aunts, uncles and friends who are close. So we call them cousins. There is always someone watching out for your child in that culture. Here it is just the family. And I think that is a missed opportunity. Did you hear that a lot from from parents you
1: interviewed? Oh, absolutely. That was just such a huge part. I think community is really what um, kind of one of the central themes of my book. Um, and um, I heard of parents, I mean, not just struggling with isolation and identity crisis when they became parents, but also just missing the connection. Uh, for example, one um, parent I spoke to uh, was from India and she she said that, you know, she got married um back in India and then immediately they moved to the United States but she just did not want to have um, kids and not until a few years later when they moved close to her family and they had that kind of a similar environment to how she grew up she was not willing to have children of her own because community was so important to her. And so many other stories like that.
4: Mm. We're talking with Masha Rumor, author of Parenting with an Accent, about the experiences of raising children in the U.S. as an immigrant. And you can join the conversation. Are you an immigrant parent? What challenges have you faced raising kids here? Or which traditions have you tried to preserve, maybe even leave behind? 866-733-6786 is the number. 866-733-6786. We'll have more with Masha Rumor and more parents after the break. Stay with us. I'm Nina Kim. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. One in four U.S. children have immigrant parents, and today we're exploring the struggles of parenting when you've been raised in a different culture. We're talking with Masha Rumer, the author of Parenting with an Accent, and you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. Are you an immigrant parent? What challenges have you faced raising kids in America? As immigrant parents, which traditions have you tried to preserve? Have you left any behind? Taka writes, a tradition I left behind was celebrating Reyes Magos with a materialistic gift. Now we don't give presents. The tradition I keep is one special favorite meal once a week. The biggest challenge as a Latino immigrant mom of a mixed race boy in the San Francisco public school district is to aid parents not proficient in English to have a voice at school and at PTA meetings where decisions for the future of the school are being made. I want to bring into the conversation now Connie Chang, a freelance journalist a freelance journalist who wrote the New York Times article Connecting My Children to Their Heritage in Mandarin. Connie Chang, thanks so much for being with us.
3: Thanks so much for having me, Mina. Great and to be you're,
4: here. Yeah, it's great to have you. And and you're slightly different from Masha in the sense that you're actually the child of immigrants, now raising children yourself. So you grew up in the US, in California actually? Yeah, in the Bay
3: Area, actually.
4: Yep. Oh. So what language did you speak in the house? Like, How were your parents' immigrant traditions um, sort of shared with you?
3: So I grew up speaking just Mandarin until I reached preschool age. And then um, I started preschool not knowing any English, which I don't quite remember. But my parents said that I was pretty bold. I went in and within, I think, a few months, I was able to speak English pretty well. Mm -hmm. So in our household, it was, even though we were in America, it felt very much like we were still Chinese. Mm -hmm. Um, My parents, we shopped at Asian grocery markets in both San Francisco and San Jose. Um, I went to Chinese school on Saturdays. Um, So a lot of those traditions were still intact.
4: So did you feel internally like one of those cultures between American and Chinese? began fighting for for primacy and that one eventually won out?
3: Yeah, it was was confusing, I think, um, for me, because in some ways, I felt really, really different from my peers. Um, I knew that on Saturdays, I couldn't watch Saturday morning cartoons. I missed out on some slumber parties, um, because I had to go to Chinese school. And, you know, when I was younger, I didn't question it. Um, But as I got older, I definitely rebelled against it. And um, I think around second grade, even though I continued to go to Chinese school until I was around 15, I pretty much rejected it. So my parents would talk to me in Eng- uh, Chinese and I would respond in English.
4: Mm. So then what happened, Connie, when you had a kid? So,
3: yeah, <laughs> when I had a kid, I i mean, a lot of things change when you have children. Right. I mean, it's a huge shift um, for most people. And I just suddenly, you know, I think it was the, not I think it was a few months before my daughter was born. I just realized that it was really important for me to instill in her um, some of my background, some of my, um, the fact that Chinese is the first language I grew up uh, speaking. Um, so I made a very conscious decision to try to speak to her in Mandarin only for the first, you know, first few months of her life only to realize that, you know, I had forgotten a lot of my Chinese. <laughs> so that was a very unpleasant realization. Um, and so like my daughter's 10 now and I have two other children. Um, in the intervening years, I've learned along with them and a lot of that language is coming back to me. So I guess for me, it was a very conscious decision to incorporate some of the traditions of my earlier life into yeah. their present, yep.
5: I'm
4: curious about what you were saying about, like, being surprised at how much you had not remembered the Mandarin. I think one of the things that kids of immigrant parents who still want their kids, even if they were born in the U.S. or in in, you know, not in the country, the home country of their parents, that they still want to pass on that heritage to them, but they feel this sort of, like, once removed nature of it almost like it was filtered th- to them and then their kids will have it filtered again to them and that it won't be like this really rich or, or um you know full version <laughs> of the culture and i i definitely you know, for me that's been something i thought about a lot and and i've been worried about whether i'm doing you know that part of my kids identity like a disservice right because <laughs> i feel sort of once
8: removed
3: absolutely absolutely and you know um I think that's the experience of a lot of us second generation immigrants is that we feel that, you know, a lot of that culture, a lot of that language even has been diluted. Um, It's, you know, we have this, this desire to pass it on, but on the other hand, we don't know it very well either. Like I feel like growing up, I kind of got a hodgepodge of that culture. Like, um, I was very into the red envelopes that we get during you know Chinese New Year. I liked getting my money from my right. parents and, and elders. Um, but then other celebrations like the um, you know the first 100 days after a baby is born, um, there's a huge celebration um, celebrating the first three months of life, like things like that. We've I've lost, and I just feel like I really want um, my children to be able to know a fuller picture of that culture and as you pointed out it's it's hard for me so i for me i've outsourced some of that um when my kids were growing up we had a nanny who was from um, mainland china and of course my parents are still in the bay area so they talk to them as much as possible um and yeah i'm just doing my best to try to pass along an imperfect um picture of my culture
4: we're talking with. Connie Chang, a freelance journalist and also Tamasha Rumor, author of Parenting with an Accent. You, our listeners, are with us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Email address forum at kqed.org. Reach us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Mary in Richmond, join us. Hi, Mary. Hi. Hi. What's on your mind?
7: Oh, yeah. I just wanted to share... Um, our our story. I'm uh, an immigrant. I came here um, when I was a teenager from Ethiopia, and I married a French man uh, whom I met in college. And so now we have two children, and we're trying to pass on both heritages, uh, and it's been difficult um, but my husband has been very strict about speaking only French to our kids and now they can speak French and we've had uh we've been fortunate to put them into French schools so we have that going but i wanted to share that for me um it was important to also just communicate with them in one language and share you know jokes and not be about me passing on my language and you know be adamant about that Mm -hmm. Um, So I didn't, you know, I didn't want a third language and then, you know, then I I wasn't sure what we would communicate in. (laughs) So uh, I consciously kind of gave that up. We had a nanny for a year um, who was Ethiopian and she kind of helped me uh, instill that language, culture and food. Um, So that was really nice. So they are kind of exposed to my culture uh, and we get to travel whenever we can, but You know, I was just wondering if other uh, immigrant parents are, um, you know, have this difficulty of, you know, whether to pass on their heritage or language or how much uh, significance is there in just being able to communicate with one language, you know, and and if that sacrifice might be necessary sometimes.
4: You know what, Connie? I'm going to go back to you on that. Thanks, Mary. That's a very sweet story and a and a great question because I read in your article that your husband is Italian. That's right. Yeah. So yeah. So how do you navigate in terms of learning languages and passing on one language versus another? And I don't know the yeah, no, that Mary's bringing up.
3: Yeah. No, that's a great question. Um, so my husband is a first-generation immigrant from Italy, um, so for us, it's also very important that we pass along his Italian culture as well. Um, we, when my daughter was born, he did speak to her in Italian, but as she got older, it became really difficult to sort of maintain both languages plus English, so we made the conscious decision to back off on Italian for now. Um, with the idea that Mandarin is a little bit more difficult to learn so it's best to get the harder language in first Um, but I something I definitely want to revisit and we visit his family in Italy um, whenever we can unfortunately the pandemic has put a a crimp in that (laughs) but it's definitely something that we're conscious of and he he's been very supportive of my desire to pass along the Mandarin culture to them as well so that's been very helpful.
4: Well, let me thank Mary again. And another Mary writes, I came to the US 50 years ago to raise my kids, who I'm very proud of. The struggles for me were language. It took me a long time to be able to express myself in English. In Korean, I am witty. In English, I am just another person speaking it as a second language, but it's better. The hardest part was dealing with the racism. I never liked it for myself, but it broke my heart to watch my kids experience it. In Korea, they would never have experienced this, but I consoled myself thinking there was a bigger goal. Now with race today, it feels like the 1960s all over again. But still, I'm glad we came because my children have rich and fulfilling lives, and I do too. Masha I'm curious if, if uh, parents you spoke with talked about this, either seeing their own children experience racism, or one of the things that I, I know that I've heard a lot is just how painful it is for parents when someone is racist towards them and their kids witness it, especially when they're trying to instill a pride in their heritage culture.
1: Um, That is just a heartbreaking story, uh, Barry. I'm sorry that you and your kids have experienced it. And unfortunately, you know, it's still often very much a reality. Um, I mean, I I mean, there was such, for example, 100 years ago, there was a huge, like, nativism movement, Um, bilingual kids were supposed, you know, considered to be like you know mentally not on the same level as monolingual English speaking kids and there was this huge push against immigrants which eventually like choked off immigration for for like decades and unfortunately we did see some of that um reappear in recent years um definitely if um you know we come to a new country we want to preserve the language but at the same time You know, there are a lot of people who might be looking at it funny or, you know, mistrusting us um, and definitely our children. And if our children see that, then they're like, oh, something must be wrong with this language uh, because they're so receptive to the environment. I did, Mm -hmm. you know, I I spoke to quite a few people. Uh, One example I can think of is um, a woman from um, the Detroit area who came from um, Iraq when she was a baby. They were um, fleeing um, persecution, there are Chaldean. And uh, she used to be, like many immigrant kids, a translator for her parents. So they would go grocery shopping and she would be speaking Arabic to or Chaldean to her mother. And she told me about an incident that the woman basically just accosted them at the store. She said, What are you saying? Stop speaking this language. Um, this is America. You got to speak English now. Um, but, you know, she somehow was able to say, you know, this is, you know, this is my language and I'm an American. I speak this language because I'm proud of it. So back off lady. Mm. Um, and so she handled it very well. And actually um, she told me that she was able to preserve uh, the native language in her home um, as an adult, unfortunately, not, not so much with her own kids now, but it's a very much a recurring theme and it's very painful. Um, and it, of course it does affect language transmission. One, one thing um, I'll say is uh, Connie, I'm just, I I love the article uh, that you wrote when it came out about your uh, preservation of uh, Mandarin. And it's so great that you're using all these resources, but it's, it's really challenging, especially since it takes three generations for us to lose a native language. I was just like floored when I, you know, when I heard those statistics because we as immigrants, first generation, we speak it, our kids um, are typically bilingual and our grandkids um, tend to be monolinguals to lose that language connection. Mm. So it's not necessarily like us that are maybe feel like we're failing. It's just the circumstances. It's a, it's not so easy to preserve that heritage language, but of course we can do the best we can if we try.
4: Yeah. A couple more thoughts on language from listeners. Carmina writes, my mom is from Mexico and she said it was more important to her to only speak English to us kids. So we wouldn't have any speech issues at grade school. The only time we heard her speak in Spanish was when she was swearing at our dad." <laughs> Susan writes, I have always been very sorry that my father, born in the Ukraine, uh, Russia at that time, who spoke Yiddish, never taught us to use his language as well. I hope others allow their children to learn their language. It's a big addition to their lives, whatever the language. Well, on the line now, we have Rajika Bhandari.
8: Uh, Rajika, thanks so much for being with us. I'm delighted to be here, Mina. Thank you for having me.
4: Rajika Bhandari is author of America Calling a Foreign Student in a Country of Possibility, She immigrated to the U.S. in 1992 from New Delhi, lives with her daughter and mother in New York. And Rajika, I have to say that's one of the things that I was really struck by, that you and your daughter do live with your mother now. And I am just so curious what effect that's had on the dynamics in your household in terms of passing on culture.
8: Yeah, I think that's a really important point, Mina, and I'm glad you brought that up because I think one of the aspects of many immigrant households in the U.S. that often goes um, unobserved, yet is quite widespread, is that um, many immigrant households are multigenerational. And in fact, when we look at the rise of multi-generational households in the U.S., um, I believe the statistic is that almost uh, a quarter of all households in the U.S. are now multi-generational, and, and and it's that's found most often actually in Asian and Hispanic families and, uh, of course, large immigrant groups within those communities. And um, so we are a multi-generational family, and uh, I think that adds a whole new layer of complexity to many of the dynamics that Masha and Kani were already talking about um but perhaps um I can add something new which is that as an as an immigrant parent you're already struggling with ideas of um how do you bring up your child how do you what are notions of discipline and uh, you know I grew up um within the Indian culture in India and um, the style of upbringing was certainly much more authoritarian than what's um, what one would find now in um, in U.S. society and so there's already that struggle of how do you sort of find a balance between uh, what you know. Does and your mom you think your... <laughs> you're
4: not being strict enough with your child? Exactly,
8: <laughs> exactly. and then you bring in sort of uh, you know the other generation and a grandparent um, and and, uh, you know, um, that can lead to a lot of self-doubt, a lot of second-guessing for a parent on, you know, are you doing this right? Are you bringing your child up the right way? So I think that's uh, that's one struggle. And I often um, find myself sort of being the buffer, uh, being the sandwich generation, but certainly sort of handling those dynamics between the older generation, which um, has not necessarily evolved or grown in any way in the US. I mean, for me, I came to the US when I was 21. So unlike Connie and Masha, I was already an adult, but I was still young enough for uh, you know, my subsequent values and beliefs to also be shaped by my time in the US, which wasn't necessarily true for my mom. So I think, um, yeah, the, uh, the, the, there are many immigrant families that are multi-generational and it's uh, it's an angle that's just uh, not explored often enough.
4: We're coming up on a break, but I'm curious, Rajika, has it made you wonder sometimes if you're too hard on your own
1: kid? <laughs>
8: Yes, and so I think there is that. That was the second guessing part that I was talking about because it's not just about um, the older generation; it's also how I've grown up, and uh, there's of course the myth of uh, you know the uh, you know the, the tiger mom and all sorts of you know other similarities. But yes, I I think I fall within that group as well to a, uh, to a to a small extent.
4: I see. So you you backed off a little bit on the tendencies to to really have your your kids push themselves for example to to really succeed we're talking with rajika bandari author of america calling a foreign student in a country of possibility who lives with her daughter and her mother in new york and immigrated to the us in 92. masha rumor is with us author of parenting with an accent who is a parent who immigrated to the U.S. at the age of 13 from the then Soviet Union. Connie Chang is with us, a freelance journalist who wrote the New York Times piece, Connecting My Children to Their Heritage in Mandarin. And we'll have more after the break. 866-733-6786 to join the conversation. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the nuances, the joys, the heartaches of raising children as an immigrant or a second-generation immigrant with Masha Rumer, author of Parenting with an Accent, Rajika Bandari, Connie Chang. And you, our listeners, are with us, 866-733-6786. Email address forum at kqed.org. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED forum or post your thoughts on Instagram. Let me get to some more calls. Jenny in Miami. Hi,
2: Jenny. Hi, how are you, uh, Mina? I'm well. What's on your mind, Jenny? Um, So I just wanted to call in and first uh, say thank you for bringing light to this subject because I think that there are many parents uh, in the United States that are raising uh, multilingual, bilingual, multicultural, bicultural kids. And it's uh, having, uh, listening uh, to other moms' stories that we can really relate and and continue in this in this journey of raising our, our multilingual or bilingual kids. Uh, for me, it's been a little bit of a challenge raising my daughter, bilingual and multilingual. My husband is Bulgarian. Uh, I was born in, in Colombia. Uh, I now live in the United States. And for me, the biggest issue has been not having um, the close proximity of immediate family to support the Mm. language and culture Mm. so for me it's and my husband is having to rely on resources online and you know trying to expand that network to help support our daughter so that she can identify with all of her cultures.
4: Well, thanks for sharing that, Jenny. I I really appreciate it. And, And that's definitely been something that's been underscored in other comments that we've heard today. For example, Joanna writes, I'm grateful that my children were able to experience several different cultures growing up, or what remains foremost in my mind, looking back, is the regret that my children were not able to experience more time with their grandparents and extended family while growing up. I want to bring Dr. Juan Gavidia into the conversation now a licensed marital and family therapist who specializes in working with first and second generation immigrant families Dr. Gavidia, thanks so much for being with us
9: Thank you for having me It's a great and,
4: conversation oh thanks and I understand you yourself are an immigrant from El Salvador as well yes yes I am so- So, as you've been listening to this conversation, I'm so curious. Well, first, can you tell us a little bit about the clients you tend to see, and what are the issues that that come up for them that maybe we haven't touched on yet?
9: So, yeah, a a lot of the you know the stories that I that I heard in this conversation come up in my in my practice. So, I I work with a lot of young professionals, uh, a lot of uh, parents who are struggling with a lot of different issues. these are some of the issues that do come up. Um, you have a lot of parents who are dealing with, you know, uh, children who don't wanna speak the language, uh, who refuse to speak the language, sometimes a sense of shame about their cultural heritage. You know, uh, parents like dealing with their own uh, their own traumas and trying to raise, raise a child kind of in a different culture. And sometimes the confusion that uh, it, it creates when you don't understand uh, the culture you're in and not knowing how to navigate uh, this system because there's no, there are no references or very little references to your own culture. Mm. So those are, uh, you know, like access, like education, um, you know, we talked about like racism and things like that are, are things that show up in my practice um, when I work with parents.
4: Uh, I've been struck by some of the things that you said in terms of when parents are seeing their children really choosing, say, what they see as U.S. mainstream culture and even seeing Mm -hmm. it or or even themselves realizing that their culture is viewed as less than in mainstream Mm -hmm. culture and kind of (laughs) internalizing that. Can you talk about how you work through that with families?
9: Yeah, so so it's an interesting experience so you know when i was in my uh, doing my doctoral dissertation i was working with uh, a lot of teenagers and i was coming across this uh, phenomena with with teens and preteens who were really struggling with their uh, cultural experience as american and also as you know like uh, if their, their heritage was from like, latin america or whatever and uh, there were times where it created this sense of uh, confusion that I I don't know where I belong. So for parents, it was confusing because they were trying to understand their children, and for the teens, it was like I I don't know where I belong. Like I I I I don't consider myself American, but I, I also don't consider myself from you know whatever country their parents came from, and this created this really interesting dynamic in the children that they had to look outside of their own family to find a center so a lot of times what they did was they looked at media so you look at representation in media and they see like what is normal right so who sets the conditions to what is normal which is dominant culture so you see characters in video games that don't reflect them characters in TV on tv shows that don't reflect them they look outside And they're looking at professionals uh, that don't reflect them. They don't feel, they don't see themselves represented in the culture. And when they do, sometimes it was represented in a negative light. So sometimes the the rejection of the the, the culture or like not, not wanting to identify came from that. Like, I don't want to associate myself with, you know, whatever was being represented or not. Because we all want to feel like there's a sense of belonging. Like we all want to feel connected to something. So that was really interesting and working with kids it was about and with parents was about having them express what their experience was as americans right so there has to be this redefinition of what american is outside of what the physical representation Mm. looks like because for Mm -hmm. a lot of people what american is is white cis uh, and male
4: you know there are threads of what you're saying that i'm i'm really Mm -hmm struck by. One of the things is it feels like almost the sense that you had to choose one or the other was at the core of this conflict. And, and what you were just saying now about what constitutes an American experience, I mean, one of the things I was struck by was the stat that I shared earlier that one in four children have immigrant parents. And so this experience of navigating a bicultural, multicultural identity as the child of immigrants are Themselves, American experiences—they're like undeniably part of being American. I, I feel like you're getting at. They're not outside the American experience.
9: Yeah, but, but the thing is, is like what's internalized is not that. So right, a child, exactly,
4: that,
9: yeah, that's experiencing the world, uh, you know, as an American ch- child, uh, it, it is an American experience. So like, if if a child writes a song in Spanish or in Korean or in Chinese or in Mandarin or any uh, language it's still an American experience but that's not how the world sees it and that's not how they perceive it they perceive yeah. it as foreign um, so yeah so that's also like an internalized experience that they don't know how to how to deal with because we don't have the language for that that's not something we talk about
4: yeah and you're helping bring that
9: together it sounds like yeah.
4: um mm-hmm. well let me go to caller Judith in San Jose next hi Judith thanks
0: hi thank you for having me sure go right ahead So my experience is that I moved here um, in my teens from West Africa. And um, when I moved here, I was so into the American culture because everything I saw, like the psychologist just said, you know, was um, the dominant culture. So I wanted so much to be American that I pushed back on my own culture. Mm. And so what I found was that as years went by and I wanted to have children Um, I started thinking, you know, like, you know what, what I was doing, you know, pushing back on that didn't help me. And so it made me take a long time to have children because I didn't have that community, you know, that I grew up in. And so I had ended up having children in my 40s and I ended up just having one because of that. So it impacted me pretty good. And so when I had my child, I married a Jewish guy. And so there was that interracial thing going on, you know. We'd we'll go out with our child, and people would say, "Oh, are you the babysitter?" Or, <laughs> you know, they didn't even think that it was my child, you know. Mm-hmm. And so she also looked at that like, "Oh, you know, maybe that's not you know good enough." And I could see that that affected her as well, you know, that mm-hmm. whole racial component to it. Right. Um, and then just raising a child without that community of, you know, wh- the way I grew up you know has really impacted her as well you know not in a good way so yeah
4: yeah well, well Judith thanks for sharing that experience mushroom I don't know if you have a reaction to what you're hearing from Judith
1: um yes Judith I'm I'm sorry that's that's been your experience um I mean that that obviously that obviously comes up and, and came up in my interviews in so many ways I mean personally um I I came also as a teenager and I rejected my Russian heritage. Actually, I um, pretended that I don't speak Russian. I started having American friends, but actually not even so much American, but other immigrant friends. And we were speaking English. I did not want to speak Russian in public. I was looking down at the foods that I was eating um, at home. But that all kind of flooded back um, first when I moved out of my home and I started really missing all of that. Mm. and And uh, definitely when I became a parent myself, I just really started celebrating it. But again, that a lot of it just comes down to the community. Um, It's so important to find, you know, like um, Dr. Gavidia was saying, representation and not just representation of immigrants or, you know, multiculturalism or multi-ethnic representation around us. It's A lot of times it's it's kind of like slapstick uh, presentations, right? Oh, look at that person. He has an accent, or look at the funny, weird foods, right? But um, that's not that's not a positive representation at all, and it definitely affects how we feel and how we um, build our families. Um, I guess one example I'll also bring up is many people who came uh, from this former Soviet Union also happened to be Jewish, uh, um, who used to be persecuted, um, you know, in Eastern Europe um, for for generations, basically, and many of them are even. Um, many of them end up being reluctant um kind of rediscovering um, judaism and their connection to their ancestors i mean also it has to do with the uh, soviet policy of, of atheism you couldn't practice any religion at all but there's a lot of reluctance in turning back and accepting your roots and being interested in them because of what it means and the memories and the pain that it bring, brings up and issues of safety as well
4: mm, yes we're talking about being an immigrant parent with masha rumor rajika pandari connie chang and dr wan Gavidia. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. So let me read a couple more comments that are coming in. Rene writes, My husband and I are both third and first generation Americans and native English speakers, but we decided to speak only Spanish to our children at home. My Chicana grandmother was beaten at school for speaking Spanish, so mostly passed on English to my father, who consequently speaks less Spanish than I do. I went to bilingual school, so I recovered Spanish, and my children are native Spanish speakers, so they speak even better than I do. Within three generations, we have recovered the language that was beaten out of our ancestors, and I treasure my grandmother telling me before she died, that my son spoke Spanish so well. I don't fault immigrant parents for yearning for assimilation, but appreciate that my children and I can talk to our family in Mexico, which is not true of some of my family. This connection to our culture has enriched our life so much. And Rahil writes, as an immigrant who came to America from Eritrea as a baby, I always had an internal conflict. My culture slash tradition at home was very much embraced, which caused me to feel separated or different from my peers at school. I would get embarrassed if my parents spoke our native language around my peers. The conflict came in the form of not being allowed to do the things my peers were doing school dances, sleepovers, clothing. As an adult without, with, as an adult with two kids of my own now, I understand where my parents were coming from, passing down the tradition so our culture would not be forgotten. Rajika Bandar, you have this really lovely story of compromise. I think at one point, and you had touched on the fact that you could be, or you were at one point, a bit of a, a tiger mom, I guess. And and you described that one of the ways that this came out was you really wanted your child to learn Indian classical dance, right? <laughs> Could you talk a little bit about what compromise you forged, uh, since it sounded like she wanted none of that?
8: <laughs> yes, uh, that's certainly one moment amongst many others. I think <laughs> the other was language where, um, as both Kani and Marsha have described, it's not easy. But um, what happened with Indian classical dance was that like many Indian immigrant families in the U.S., I felt that I had to send my daughter to an Indian community center to learn one of our traditional Indian classical dances. And um, so I enrolled her and it did not go well. And I got a lot of pushback and she had zero interest in it. And um, I pushed it for a while, but then ultimately had to really step back and ask myself the question that, why exactly am I doing this? Is this really because it's something that's beneficial for her as an individual or is this really much more about assuaging my sense of holding on to some Indian traditions that I think uh, need to be held on to and I eventually let that one go Um, but what I discovered was that even though I let go of having her go through the ordeal of learning something she clearly didn't want to there were many other ways to infuse that same sense or a similar sense of cultural understanding. So what we instead began to do, um, we lived in New York City, now we live just outside. So we're very lucky to have um, a lot of different cultural opportunities. And so I began taking her to Indian dance performances. I began taking her to musical concerts and that's something she's always enjoyed. So it was a way, the compromise was of exposing her to the artistic traditions of the culture I came from, but just in a really different way, which yeah. seemed to be working better. So yeah, <laughs> that's, that's the story about giving up on Indian classical dancing.
4: <laughs> well, John writes, a tradition I was happy to leave behind is how girls traditionally are treated in Korean culture. Less opportunities, less chances to lead. It's different now, but still not as good as in the U.S., or even though women make less than men, women still have chances to lead, to have careers. As the father of three daughters, I feel they have a much better path forward here and more options. Such a lovely and interesting thought, um, Connie Chang, in terms of the the opportunity to keep the things that you love and the things that um, you find most beneficial to your own child's life. I'm wondering if you could leave us with you know, as I was hearing Rajika's story, any touching moments of connection for you at the end that have brought together the things that you've struggled with in terms of trying to to connect, you know, your your immigrant parents and your experience growing up as the daughter of immigrants um, to your children now.
3: <laughs> yeah, uh, that's. Thank you for asking that question. Um, I think my dad gets and my my mom too gets a big kick out of the fact that my kids are able to recite you know tang poetry or to read a book to them in mandarin so it's been great to i think especially given the sort of hurt memories that he must have had when i was a kid and rejecting his culture the fact that i'm working so hard to connect them now and to bring some of the some of the the culture and identity to his grandchildren is very meaningful to him and he just loves just you know hanging out with my my son Todd and he'll just read him a story about i don't know he's reading him a story about how beans grow the other day and my father just had this huge smile on his face they were doing it over FaceTime because of mm, covid issues right.
4: but you're really pointing at the healing effect of sort of that that uh, cultural loop that that you've created well connie chang thank you Thank you. And my it's been great. Yeah. And my thanks to Dr. Juan Gavidia and Rajika Bandari and also to Masha Rumer for inspiring the segment with her book, Parenting with an Accent. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I also want to thank our listeners for sharing such sweet and touching stories about growing up with immigrant parents or being immigrant parents themselves. And Grace Wan for producing today's segment. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim.
0: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons
5: Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, President of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum.
6: I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha- Found you. How? you left to find my tablet on. Get
7: wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hi,
6: I'm Tyler
2: Foggett. Join me and my colleagues as we go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds in politics for insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Make sure you're following The Political Scene, available now wherever you get your podcasts.